Hello, and welcome to Paper Boys, the podcast where we unravel the research papers behind the latest major headlines in science. Every Thursday, we go to the source of the story to open up the work behind beautiful new discoveries and cut through misinformation in the media. I'm your host, Charlie, and today I'm bringing in a paper about Da Vinci's eyes. I'm your other host, James. I have not read the paper, nor did I know anything about Da Vinci's eyes, so I'll have lots of questions for you, Charlie. Well, hopefully I'll be teaching you a little bit about them today. So James and I are both PhD students. We read a lot of papers in our own research, so we've gotten okay at doing it, and uh, we thought we would share this skill and our love for science with anyone else who wants to learn about new discoveries that affect all of us. In short, we are the Paper Boys. Okay, Charlie, so you mentioned this paper for today is about Da Vinci's eyes. So what got you on this topic? What did you see in the news? How did you find this? Yeah, so it came up in a lot of news articles, and it wasn't just, hey, did you know Da Vinci had eyes? Wow. There's, there's more to it. Uh, it turns out he may have had an eye condition. That, like something wrong with his eyes? Yeah, I get, you could say some, not wrong, but abnormal. Okay, okay. Um, it's a condition called strabismus. So the headlines that I came across that turned me on to this, one was from CNN. Rare eye condition was behind Da Vinci's genius, research claims. Hmm. And then we have Washington Post said, Leonardo Da Vinci's genius may be rooted in a common eye disorder, new study says. Interesting. So they're trying to draw some connection between his eye disorder, his eye disorder and his prolific art. And yeah, and the way that he painted, particularly. And mm. I think it's funny that um, Washington Post calls it a common eye disorder and CNN calls it a rare eye condition. <laughs> I've noticed, yeah, a little bit of contrast there in their two descriptions. Yeah, one of them is clearly going for more sensationalism there. The Independent said Leonardo da Vinci may have had an eye disorder that helped him paint masterpieces. So yeah, like you picked up on, there's something about this eye condition, strabismus, that he had that may have actually helped contribute to his skill as a painter. Wow. So like this eye condition literally and figuratively may have changed the way he saw the world. Yes, exactly. The actual paper that these articles are based on is called Evidence That Leonardo da Vinci Had Strabismus. It's by a professor named Christian Tyler at City University of London. It was published in JAMA Ophthalmology which is Journal of the American Medical Association. And I think ophthalmology is just the study of the eyes. <laughs> okay, so what is strabismus? Strabismus is an eye condition that it has a couple nicknames. It's also called squint or crossed eyes. Um, you can also call someone wall-eyed if they have this. And there's actually a couple different variations on strabismus, strabismus where you would use those different nicknames. But uh, essentially, it's a condition where your eyes do not properly align with each other if you're looking at something. Oh, okay. And so, all right, so your eyes aren't properly aligning then as we would normally think about it. Does this affect your vision? It can, yeah. So there's a couple different ways that you can have strabismus. strabismus. There's esotropia, which is when your eyes are crossed. And then there's exotropia, where your eyes actually diverge from each other. Okay. So that would be like, you know, when you say someone has a wandering eye or something, that's exotropia. And then there's also 
hypertropia, where you have a vertical misalignment of your eyes, which I have never seen, but apparently that's a form of strabismus. Interesting. It seems like that would throw off your perception of depth or other characteristics like that really take advantage of stereoscopic vision. It does, yeah. It does. And that's sort of one of the arguments in this paper. The paper is presenting evidence that da Vinci might have had exotropia, meaning his eyes diverged. So he had a, a wandering eye, quote unquote. If you have exotropia, then you can sometimes switch between monocular vision and binocular vision, meaning really? that the eye that's that's diverging, your brain will sort of shut off input from it and you'll just see things as though you were looking really through one eye. And so you'll th- see things in two dimensions, which is a great trait to have when you're trying to represent a 3D object on a 2D canvas. Whoa. So it's so cool that you bring that up. This reminds me of some discussion we had in a class a while back about how depth perception is a learned concept. As like children, we aren't inherently born with this idea of depth. Really? And so they could learn a lot about how people see these things by looking at specific pathological cases where people had problems with their eyes. Like there was one funny case I remember they brought up in class where they're like, people would look at these paintings where there is depth and, you know, distance going back into the into the work, like, you know, a big landscape with yeah, people. Yeah. And they're like, what are all these weird colors on the people's faces that are obviously shadows that Whoa. we see and understand? But for these people who had different conditions, it just seemed really strange. Wow. That's crazy. So there have been a couple of famous artists in history that had this condition. Really? And it hits at what you were just saying. So Rembrandt, had strabismus, and so did Picasso. And then there was also a guy named um, Barbieri whose nickname was Il Guercino, which is Italian for the squinter. Really? Yeah. Wow. But so Picasso in particular, if you think of what you were just describing, mm-hmm. imagine a, there's a great example of this. It's like the old man with a guitar painting of Picasso's. I forget if that's the actual name. Yeah, I know which one you're talking about. Yeah, and the old man, his neck is kind of bent over and he's strumming it. But it looks very too, like... There's very little depth if you really look at it holistically. Like everything looks like it's in one plane, mm-hmm. but then the shading is what really gives you all the cues as to the depth of the picture. And so those are the types of things that they say some of these great artists who had strabismus were more in tune with non-stereoscopic cues of depth that wow. allowed them to better represent them on the canvas. So things like Picasso was a master of shading because he was probably way more attentive to the shading on objects than you or I. That's so interesting. It makes you wonder then, too, with some of his abstract works, was he really just breaking down what he saw? Yeah, like cubism is trying to represent all the different sides of a 3D object as just this one kind of cacophony of shapes. It's like you're taking 3D, putting it in 2D in this very neat, abstract way. I mean, you could you could make the argument that, yes, his strabismus gave him that type of insight. Maybe it's like a, an initial push to start right. that when you realize that you're maybe not seeing things in the same way that others do. Right. So it sounds like if several artists have had strabismus, it's not super rare like the one news source was mentioning. Yeah. So apparently it occurs in about 2% of children. Oh, wow. I, okay. I mean, I'm getting that stat from Wikipedia, but the news articles I've seen have said, you know, 1% or 4%. So it's some single digit percent, but it's not less than one. So, I mean, there are millions of people in the United States who have it. Yeah. I mean, you probably know plenty of people who have it. Actually, the one that I found when going through this research was Ryan Gosling. 
Ryan Gosling. And now wow. I can't look at him the same because now I really notice it. So look at this picture of him. Oh, you notice it, yeah. It's like super noticeable. And it, like this one, it's a little less noticeable, but it, it's just a little bit. Once you see it, you're like, oh, wow, yeah, his eye is definitely wandering off to the side. You notice it, yeah. That's that's really interesting. I had no idea. I never knew that about Ryan Gosling. I know, me neither. And now I'm like, wow, okay. And, you know, w- one reason I even bring up this these other cases of strabismus is like one of these news articles that I read was talking about how people with this condition tend to be ostracized in society. Maybe it's been difficult for them in social situations because it's a very noticeable thing physically and people have all kinds of mean nicknames that they'll use, you know, or at least in mean-spirited ways. And they point out that, you know, saying that guys like Da Vinci and Picasso or Ryan Gosling, you know, anyone that like we idolize as being these great people, they have these conditions and it's like, oh, well, okay. So it's it's a normal thing. Destigmatizes it. it, Exactly. Totally destigmatizes it. Yeah, that's so interesting that it's such a common condition yeah, in society. Yeah. And so what is it exactly that sparked these researchers to look into da Vinci's works to see if he may have it? So this professor, Christian Tyler, he said that he's been a lifelong fan of da Vinci. And he also, he's a professor, I think, of neuroscience maybe, but then he's also a researcher at this eye institute or this eye research facility or something in San Francisco, I think. And so he has these two passions, which are art and eyes. Wow. Um, so, you know, this research is a little self-serving in that sense. But given that there is evidence of these other artists who had it, he started to notice a couple of da Vinci's paintings and and portraits of da Vinci or supposed portraits of da Vinci where he saw the eyes that were diverging a little bit. So he went through and wanted to actually determine whether that was the case. Hmm. Now, it turns out that this is pretty tricky to do because there are not very many self-portraits of da Vinci. Actually, there are no verifiable self-portraits of da Vinci, I should say. Oh, really? I I know I've seen the one kind of sketch of him as like an old man with a big yeah, gray with beard. Yeah, with the red but... chalk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that is widely accepted to be a self-portrait by da Vinci, but not by everyone. And they just, particularly, I think they dispute it because he looks so old, but he would have only really been like 60 when he painted it. So they say there's a discrepancy there, but... Oh, okay. And then is it an accurate self-portrait or like somewhat like fanciful one? Right. But he does use that as one of the studies in this. So he takes six works that he assumes to be representative of da Vinci. One is that self-portrait. And representative of da Vinci in the sense of him being depicted in the work? Yes. So, Or his characteristics coming out in a depiction of someone else? Yes, that's kind of the argument that Christian Tyler makes. And this is where not only my own reservations about this research come in, but also in some of these articles, there were quotes from other professors who said that this was their reservation as well. Oh, okay. Is that... It's a little tenuous. Yeah. So let's go through the six works and say how Christian Tyler argues that these are representative of da Vinci. Uh, One is a sculpture called David by Andrea del Verrocchio. And this one, I think, is verified to be modeled after da Vinci because da Vinci was a student of del Verrocchio's, I think, and was known to model in the studio. And they know that this one sculpture is based on da Vinci. Okay. There's another sculpture 
also by Andrea Del Verrocchio called Young Warrior. And this one, they just assume is also modeled on Da Vinci because it's from the same time period. And again, because Da Vinci frequently modeled for Andrea Del Verrocchio. I'm pulling up a photo of this statue, David, with the head of Goliath. Is that the yes. one? Yeah. Okay. I remember that's a famous one, sort of like young David with this kind of looking very innocent, but he's holding this dagger and he the looks head a little of cocky too, you know? Yeah. He's got the yeah. long hair. That supposedly is what Da Vinci looked like. Interesting. Yeah. Great kind of contrast between the old head of Goliath on the floor yeah. and young Da Vinci or young David. Maybe <laughs> David, both. yeah. So there's two sculptures and then there are two paintings. One is Salvatore Mundi, which is a painting of Jesus. And they actually didn't even know who had painted this until recently. They attributed it to Da Vinci, but there's still some contention on that matter. It's not fully accepted that, yes, Da Vinci painted this, but many people believe that he did. Fun fact, this painting actually recently sold for $400 million at auction. I $400 think it was, million? Dollars? Yeah, I think that's the record for the highest price paid for a painting at auction. Wow. Yeah. Another painting, Young John the Baptist, which is definitely by Da Vinci, but again, it's a painting of a different person, not himself. Yeah, that gets tricky. Uh, and then there's Vitruvian Man, which is a sketch. You know that drawing of the naked guy with his arms splayed out inside the circle? And yeah. he's got his legs are straight down and then also splayed out. Showing the human proportions. Right, all the proportions. Um, that's Da Vinci. And then the self-portrait that you mentioned where he's this old man with a big gray beard. So you'll notice that really only two of those, maybe three, are purported to depict Da Vinci himself. The rest of these are paintings or works that da Vinci did of other figures. But Christian Tyler argues essentially that since da Vinci apparently wrote in a book, I'll, I'll quote here, the soul guides the painter's arm and makes him reproduce himself since it appears to the soul that this is the best way to represent a human being. Uh, and then Christian Tyler says, thus any of his portraits may be considered to reflect his own appearance to some extent. So it's, it's kind of a leap in assuming this but you know it is what it is yeah i can see the, i can see the logical path for it you know it doesn't do a lot to discount random chance or coincidence or you know other explanations but right you could build an argument on that right okay so following this logic then how does the author actually determine then that da vinci had strabismus what's his methodology so tyler goes and draws these circles and ellipses on the eyes and he fits them around the pupils, irises, and then the actual like eyelid apertures, so the you know oval shape of your eye. And he measures the relative positions of those, like position of each one res with respect to each other. Mm -hmm. And then you can compare the difference in those po positions between the left eye and the right eye and see if they're both looking in the same direction. Okay. And then once those positions are calculated, you can convert them into essentially an angular rotation of the eye by assuming like a generic eyeball size. And then that angle tells you whether someone has strabismus or not. So I think if you were looking directly straight ahead and you had perfect vision, then you would be at an angle of zero degrees. Okay. If you were looking at a sheet of paper, like a meter in front of you, then you would have an angle of like three and a half degrees. So positive would be your eyes are slightly crossed. So, like, imagine watching your finger as you're drawing it closer to your face. Your eyes are going to get crossed further and further inwards. So, that's a more and more positive angle. 
Okay, like the test they do if you get a physical and the doctor holds something and brings it close. Right, and you have to keep watching it. Now, in each of these works, the angle was calculated. So for David, it was negative 13.2 degrees. Uh, young warrior, negative 12.5 degrees. And then there's negative 9.1, negative 8.3. And then actually in Salvatore Mundi and Vitruvian Man, there were positive angles, like 3 degrees and 5.9 degrees. Okay, wow. The painting seems like it would be really hard to calculate that, but I'm sure they... Well, and you can see in the paper where he draws these circles and these ellipses and stuff, and it is pretty precise, but it is also, at least in Salvatore Mundi, it's kind of hard to identify exactly where the iris is, but the pupil is drawn very clearly. And then what's interesting is Salvatore Mundi especially, even though it's kind of hard to make out the irises and, and some of the details of the eyes, there's a very clear, intentionally drawn reflection of light off of the eyeballs. And this is actually the test that eye doctors use to determine whether you have strabismus. Really? Is that, yeah. So if you were to look at someone's eyes who had this, you know, there's, there's like a, a pinpoint reflection of light on your eyeball. Yes. And you can sort of figure out where that reflection is relative to your pupil. If both your eyes are perfectly aligned, then that pinpoint reflection should be at the same relative place on the sphere of your eyeball. Yep, that makes sense. But if one of your eyes is is turned away, then that pinpoint is going to appear on a different relative place. Like it'll look like let's say I'm looking at you, your left eye, the reflection that I can see is directly in the center of the pupil. And then on your right eye, I see that reflection over at the edge of your iris. Mm-hmm. That means that your other eye has wandered to the point where that reflection reaches your iris. Oh, Does okay. that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I can, I can visualize how I want. If you're looking at a painting and you see the two points, you would notice if there's some divergence from the normal angle of the eyes. Right. And so th- that is actually, th- that test is called the Hirschberg reflex. Where you, where you try to determine where the reflection of that light is. And in Salvatore Mundi, you can see the difference in the location of the reflection between the two eyes, which for a painter as precise and exact as da Vinci, you know that he was intentionally drawing that reflection in the place that he did. He didn't just slip and put it more to the side than he meant to. Yeah, when you look at the detail in all of his work, it seems like, especially for something as revealing as the eyes of the subject that you're painting, you wouldn't mess that up. Right. It's and definitely not a mistake. Skill, like, and, he has the skill to be that precise. Yeah. And Christian Tyler actually points out that this Hirschberg reflex effect is something that is almost never drawn by portrait artists. And then, you know, I'm quoting the paper here. So this should be regarded as quite telling in the present circumstance. So it's a big deal that he drew it this way. Wow. Especially given that you can assume it was intentional. All right, so from the numbers that you gave, most of them were pretty heavily negative. Those seem like angles you would definitely notice if you saw them. Yes. I mean, yeah, negative 13 degrees, you would easily pick that up. I mean, when you look at these paintings and the sculptures, you can pretty clearly see it. The same way that when I just showed you that picture of Ryan Gosling, it was pretty immediately clear that one eye was diverging. Wow. I guess these numbers correspond to like a moderate level of exotropia. I, I think a more extreme would be, you know, closer to 20 degrees divergent. So this this average was around, I think, somewhere around 10 degrees and, or negative 10 degrees, and that is considered moderate exotropia. 
In your research at all, reading this paper and looking into the condition, the angle changes somewhat the same way that, you know, if you're focusing in or out, the angle changes, right? So the, the yeah. fact that there's variance in this data seems very reasonable, right? If it's, it is, in fact, Da Vinci in these works. It is reasonable, but what was a little concerning is the fact that two of those numbers are positive. And the author makes a point of saying that this is evidence that Da Vinci had what's called intermittent exotropia, which means that you could actually revert to normal vision when you're focusing on something. Oh, And that's where he makes the point that if you were looking at something a meter away from your face, you would have a normal angle of positive 3.44 degrees. And those two positive ones were 3.17 and 5.9. So those would be consistent with if an artist were looking in a mirror or were looking at their canvas, that's about the angle that their eyes would be if they were exhibiting normal vision. So he uses those two positive ones to argue that da Vinci was switching between those two modes of vision. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, maybe it's a little bit of fitting the data or coming up with an explanation, but at least there's a reasonable explanation that could fit the data. Yeah. And again, all of this is, and he's pretty upfront that this is, he's just presenting the numbers that could support the theory that da Vinci had strabismus. Yes. Yeah. Um, he's not saying definitively like, this is the absolute truth of what it is. It's a possibility. Right. And it's coming from a guy who studies strabismus and da Vinci. So it's, again, it's like, of course, that's what he that's what his hypothesis is. And I think it's, it's a really interesting hypothesis to make. And I don't think he's even the first one to have noticed this. Um, this was just, you know, a paper that got a lot of traction in the news. It truthfully sounds like a pretty fun paper. I mean, if you're into art and this is like your life career working with eyes and ophthalmology to be able to combine both and write a somewhat new investigative article about it. Yeah, like, yeah. Why not? So the one kind of problem that I had, though, was in the end... He presents this little side note. He says that uh, in Vitruvian Man and Salvatore Mundi, he noticed what's called anascoria, which is a difference in pupil size. I think in one of them, uh, one of the pupils was like 1.2 times larger than the other. And in another one, the pupil was 1.5 times larger than the other, which is pretty substantial. Yeah. But then he kind of brushes this off and says... Well, I think this was really an artistic trope that's just meant to represent pictorially a dominant eye instead of any actual neurological condition. And so, it's like, oh, okay, I believe that, but you've kind of applied the opposite logic to all of these other quote-unquote self-portraits. It sounds like he's almost just using it when it's convenient to say, like, yeah. oh, they could be really accurate here, but then... Yeah. They're taking their artistic freedom here. Right. Especially because, yeah, he points out how the Hirschberg reflex is evident in Salvatore Mundi and that it's so exact. But then he says, oh, the pupil sizes are substantially different, but that doesn't mean anything. It's like, well, maybe he did have anascoria. I don't know. Yeah. But well, I think the anascoria hypothesis might be at odds with the exotropia hypothesis. So that's where I kind of read it and I'm like, uh, this needs to be looked into a little more. Yeah, it's we, a we need bit more of a loose than foundation. one. Yeah, we need more than one author looking at this. Yeah, I mean, granted, we don't need any authors <laughs> looking at any of this, right? But if we really want to answer this question, yeah, I think it's worth some deeper digging. Yeah, and maybe a little bit more rigorous analysis. It does seem like an interesting work, though, 
in what it could spark uh, for future work, looking at the mechanisms or differences amongst us that may lead to different creativity or different perspectives that manifest themselves in art. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, especially given that they're, they've already identified a couple of these in the past. And, you know, there's other conditions like, have you ever heard of synesthesia? Uh, it rings a bell, but remind me what it is. It's, I, I'm going to completely butcher this, but it's, I think it's where your senses are sort of crossed. So you would see different numbers as having different colors, or you could like taste blue or something oh, like that. Yeah. I remember some PBS special and they were talking about that and they played like Bach and the girl was like, oh, I taste mashed potatoes. And yeah. Like, huh. Yeah. And so, and that's something that I feel like only in the last 10, 20 years has been getting all this kind of renewed attention that people are starting to say like, whoa, this is this really cool thing that could be really advantageous for all these different reasons. Maybe this type of exotropia or something, they'll start to hone in on to identify these artistic traits and like you said. Oh, that's really interesting. I'm fascinated to see if more cases of this end up popping up as well. Might be interesting to do some Googling too and see who else may have this. Yeah, yeah. Um, so looking back then at the popular news articles that were covering this research, how do you think they did? They were average to bad, I would say. Average to bad. All right. And I just say that because there's no way to like really greatly cover this like wow your coverage of that da vinci paper was just beautiful and spot on and i really grasped the issue at hand because it's not like this life or death research it's not like misinformation on this matter is going to change people's lives really yeah it's more just I see. did you read the paper and did you report on it responsibly or not by the time they covered the methodology in the news article it's like you may as well just read the paper yourself yeah i mean the paper was four pages with large pictures. So I, I'll admit, this was a, a low-hanging fruit for me. <laughs> I've been busy, <laughs> oh, man. I, I took, took the short one this time. but No, no, no. But that said, you know, you, li anyone listening, should go read this if you have the chance. I think it might be behind a paywall, but uh, I'm sure you can maybe find it somewhere on Twitter or something. Yeah. For the record, I think the article about the discovery of the DNA dual helix was six pages, so... It's not the number of pages that counts. There you go. It's not the size, it's how you use it. <laughs> exactly. It's <laughs> um, whatever gets you the Nobel Prize. Yeah, so the CNN article, Rare Eye Condition Was Behind Da Vinci's Genius Research Claims. I kind of laughed at this one because I read the Washington Post one first, and I just laughed that the headline was Rare Eye Condition. When it's, I mean, it's really not that rare. Yeah. Like, well, we all know someone with this. That was bad. Um, but that's, whatever, that doesn't matter. This one was good They because they actually interviewed like an uninvolved professor for this one. Um, so I'm going to quote the article here. Dr. Julius Oates, assistant professor in the Department of Ophthalmology at the University of California, San Francisco, called the findings interesting. Uh, and then this is a quote from Dr. Julius Oates. There are a lot of uncertainties whether the pictures truly depict da Vinci himself and if they depict the eyes realistically. Um, so just picking up on the same thing that I kind of picked up on which I think anyone would pick up on when they read this. Yeah. Um, Alternative explanations. The Washington Post article was, I think, was better than the CNN one. This one actually had um, more quotes from Christian Tyler himself. And then this also reached out to an uninvolved professor, Shira Robbins, who's a professor at University of California, San Diego. She called the findings intriguing. Hmm. So just funny. They're, they're all calling it the same kind of noncommittal adjective. Yeah. 
But she's the one who pointed out that this type of research could have a very positive impact on people who actually have this disorder. She pointed out that people sometimes have this misconception that someone with a wandering eye is of lesser intellect. Oh, just these unfounded biases. Right. I mean, imagine if you were trying to draw a cartoon of like a big stupid zany person, like you'd have their eyes crossed or something. Yeah, it's like, you know, sort of just the mean like kindergarten culture. Right. So her point is just that the more we get, we prop up these people with these conditions in culture, the better it is for people who suffer, you know, that kind of taunting. Yeah. I mean, if you imagine if Leonardo da Vinci was alive today, I mean, you know, you probably put him, if you're going to rank most brilliant people in history, he's at least at the game. He's pretty high up there. Yeah. Yeah. So real Renaissance man. I, he he literally invented the idea. You may of a even Renaissance call him man. a Renaissance man. Yeah. <laughs> and then lastly, the Independent article kind of made me mad. Really? Um, yeah. This one was the one that was bad. How did they stoke the fire? What do you mean? I mean the fire of your anger. Oh, okay. <laughs> so the very first line of this article says that his squint may have helped him capture Mona Lisa's smile, according to researchers. There's just a thousand things wrong with that sentence, which is, one, nowhere in anything that I read is the Mona Lisa even brought up a single time. Yeah. Two is, what would this eye condition have anything to do with being able to capture that enigmatic smile? Yep. And then three is the idea that they say, oh, it helped him capture Mona Lisa's smile, according to researchers. Like, it's just adding this random appeal to authority there. That's the problem with, like, popular science news. This, like, random, like... Oh, researchers did this or NASA funded this. Yes, like studies show this that's is exactly why we started this podcast. In our like first episode, like our zeroth episode unaired, we had we we talked about that at the beginning where we're going studies show researchers found. But it's like, well, first of all, there's only one researcher, not even according to researchers. Uh, and second of all, that no researcher said that. It's not in the paper. <laughs> you just made that up and then added according to researchers so that it wouldn't sound like you made it up. <laughs> Um, that sounds and again this is super harmless but you notice these things on these harmless things and then it suddenly becomes apparent when you're reading stuff you know a lot less about and it makes you really question did researchers say that so the only way to know is to actually go read the paper yeah and then later on they say doctor this is a quote doctors have diagnosed the renaissance master with strabismus what he didn't come up with a diagnosis it's yeah they're not it's just a... They make it sound like they brought in his skull to like an eye exam and yeah, or like made this some, diagnosis. Some genetic test on his bones that like prove it for fact. Right. Like this is a professor who looked at paintings, not... They didn't spray eye, air into your eye <laughs> and then put a bunch of lenses in. Like a diagnosis is a completely different thing. That, I don't know. Yeah. Again, it's Again, it's very small little nitpicky things, issues that I have here, but... They add up to yeah. They add up to like a, a misrepresentation and a misinformation about all this. The other thing, I just you know to really drive the nail in the coffin of what bothered me. Tiny nitpicky things that bothered me in this <laughs> is that this article has plenty of internal links to other independent articles. So I know that they're capable of linking to things. And then when they mention the research, no link to the paper. Really, they don't even link to the actual paper that they're no. talking about. And that's something that I've really started to try to focus on when I'm reading these articles for the podcast is, does this article link to the paper? That's the that's the first litmus test that I apply now to say, is this a good quality article? 
Mm -hmm. Because if they don't link to it, it's because they want you to get your information about this research from them, not from the source. Oh, that's a little... They're just putting up a barrier for you to go read the paper yourself, you know? Yeah. Really, it's like, in the ideal situation, this should just be like a quick teaser of like, here's what you can find, and isn't this exciting? Learn more from the paper. I guess so, yeah. And I get that they have to report all the information, and you shouldn't have to read the paper to really understand it. But that's my point, is that you should be able to give me the proper understanding if you're not going to give me the option to go read the paper, you know? Again, super nitpicky on one level, but also, like, really pisses me off on another level, so... I think it's a fair assessment. I think it's a fair assessment. It's just like proper accreditation, too. If you're pulling all this information from somewhere, you should cite it or reference it. Yeah, I mean, and they say what the paper was, but no no way for me to click through to it. What I was getting at is like in modern times, for every news article, there's this expectation that you just post a link to it. Right. Well, thanks, Charlie. That was very interesting paper. I think it's an interesting discussion and look back onto a very notable person. You may say that I'll never look upon Da Vinci's work in the same way. I I don't think that you will, and I don't think you'll look at Ryan Gosling the same either. No, never again. Now you'll notice it. Uh, Yeah, if you want to know more about that work, you can check out our website, paperboyspodcast.com. We'll have links to the paper itself, as well as some of those news articles, maybe a couple pictures of Ryan Gosling for good measure. Absolutely. Why not? If you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to share this with a friend on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at paperboyspod, and we love comments, questions, and general interaction. It's really rewarding for us to interact with people who listen. Yeah, definitely. And please join us next week for another exciting edition of Paperboys. Thanks for listening. <laughs>